It's okay. This morning, I want to uh, deal with a hot topic. Uh, it's a good one, though. Um, I've titled it God's Help and Helper. And um, we want to talk about just the word help this morning, believe it or not. <clears throat> Particularly in the Old Testament. I suppose the first thing you think of is Genesis chapter 2, when God told Adam that he would need to have a helper and he was going to make him one. But before we dig into that, I want to explore a little bit farther in the Old Testament about how this word is used. And I think that it will add a little enlightenment and help to understanding just what it means to be a helper or a help meet. If you just look in Strong's Dictionary or basically any dictionary, you'll find the word help just means help, to give aid. That's it. Strong's just says aid, nothing else. So that is the fundamental meaning of the word. But how it's used, how that aid is given, the how that help is uh, distributed to people makes a difference in how we view this. So that's what we really want to look at this morning. Now the Hebrew word is an interesting word. It's uh, E-Z-E-R, pronounced Azer. And um, you'll see this a little later on uh, in a familiar way. But I think that it will also help give a full understanding of what it means when God created Eve to be a helper or a help meet as the full expression is given to us there in chapter 2. Now the, the word actually occurs about 21 times, the particular word that we're looking at. Now there's other forms of the word used many more times than that. But the ones we're most interested in uh, is used 21 times. Twice here in this passage concerning Eve. Three times it's used about people helping people. Men helping men. Giving aid to someone. 16 times it's used about God being our helper. So that's a significant number. And it means a lot when we examine it, exactly how that kind of help is rendered and the context in which the help is given. So you'll have to follow along because there is a goal that we're headed towards here and what we want to say about it. And, um, <clears throat> well, we'll skip ahead to... Um, Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18. And let's look at verse 4. Exodus 18. Now, of course, leading up to that, sometimes you have to look at a couple verses just to get the context. But you'll see there that uh, he's meeting with uh, Jethro in verse 18, um, or chapter 18, verse 1. 
his father-in-law. And you'll notice in verse 2, it says, uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And then secondly, the name of the other was Eliezer. And he says there concerning Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help. And of course, the name means God is my help. And you see the word Azer in the name Eliezer. And he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So take note also of the word delivered because they, they belong together and they are, at least in this context, and they're going to mean something to us as we look at the various ways in which this word is, is uh, used. All right, so the next thing we want to look at, the next verse is Deuteronomy chapter 33. So turn over there if you will. Now we've jumped all the way from, from Genesis to Deuteronomy and we've gone through the whole process of God delivering his people from Egypt. They've gone up to the promised land. Uh, they came back because they refused to go in. They spent 40 years of wandering. Now they're on the edge of the uh, Jordan River ready to go back into the promised land. And Moses is delivering his, his final message because he's not going in because of his disobedience. And so he's pronouncing a blessing, actually, on Israel. And in that, in verse 7, you'll notice he says concerning Judah, he says, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and may you be a help against his enemies. Now, this, this, these first two occurrences here, with the name of Eliezer and Moses recalling what God had done for them and bringing them out of Egypt will give us a little clue as to the predominant use of this word help in connection with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And here he reminds us once again concerning help against his enemies. And then if you'll look down at, at verse 26, or actually, for me, I have to turn a page because I've got a large print Bible here. So I turn my page, and there in verse 26, it says, There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. Notice he, he, he rides the heavens to help you. Who does? Yahweh, the God of Jeshurun, which is another name for Israel. So, again, we see repeated out of these 16 uses of the word help in connection with Yahweh, we see how it's used in relationship to Israel's enemies. Um, look down at verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you? a people saved by Yahweh, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down 
their high places. The shield of your help. So again, looking at the word shield and connection with the word help. And we find ultimately that we're going to see that help here has the idea of giving aid in the sense of being a deliverer or a protector or shield to Israel. Now, of course, individuals appeal to God as a help as well in the Old Testament, and they appeal in the same context, that God is there to be their help, to aid them in whatever their need might be. Now, over in Psalm chapter uh, 20, in verses 1 and 2, Psalm 20 and verses 1 and 2, Excuse me. This is David. And he says, May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. Again, a very simple plea. But you'll notice the context in the time of trouble in the time of need, when he needed help. And he said, may he protect you. Again, the idea of a shield, of taking care of the one that he is there to aid and help. Over in Psalm 33 and verse 20, it says, there our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Again, our protector. And then down in Psalm 70, Psalm 70, verses 1 through 5. So if you want to turn over there, we're going to read those five verses. Psalm 70, and verses, excuse me, 1 through 5. That's all five. Where he says, make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. By the way, the word help there is a, is a derivative of the word we're looking at, but it's a feminine form. So that's not the word we're going to zero in on, although it is, it is important. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha, let all those who seek you... <clears throat> in other words... They were scorning them by saying, aha, aha, yeah. So you think you're something. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, and let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Yahweh, do not delay. Here is David. He is in a time of great distress. He is in need. And he's calling upon Yahweh as his help and as his deliverer. One who will get him out of the situation that he's in. Now I know that a lot of times we pray prayers like that. I don't know that we necessarily get into the kinds of situations that David is speaking here. When he's talking about someone who is an enemy against God's people. Sometimes we just don't like the situation we're in. We ask God, help me get out of this. 
I got myself in a tight spot here. And that's not the kind of thing that David is speaking of here. He's talking about someone who is an enemy of Israel, one who is against the people of God, and he's asking God, deliver us. Come to our aid. And the same theme just continues on and on throughout the rest of the scriptures. Matter of fact, Psalm 89, if you'll just turn a few pages over to Psalm 89, you'll find the same, the same theme again. In verse uh, 19, I think it is. Uh, yep. He said, Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. And also over in Psalm 115, three times we find this same expression given. I'm, I'm, I'm reading all these for a reason. Because I want us to see over and over and over again how this word is connected with God's people, Yahweh, and the nation of Israel. He says in, in verse 9, Psalm 115, verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And we see again individuals here calling upon Yahweh, or the psalmist is encouraging them, admonishing them that in their time of need, Yah, uh, you know, uh, he says to Israel, he says concerning Aaron, and then he says, all you who fear the Lord, call upon him in that time of need. Well, we're going to see in a little bit the context for you and I of what that kind of time of need is. And it's a very important one. Um, okay. Over in, um, where am I going next? <clears throat> Hosea. Hosea, chapter 13. You got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, when you get into the prophets, you know that a, lot, a great majority of the time, they're speaking against Israel and her conduct before Yahweh. They've departed from the Lord. They're not honoring him. They are not worshiping him. And because of that, they've had to pay some severe consequences. In this particular case right here, we're looking at the, the, the uh, Ephraim, which was the northern kingdom. And remember, they went into exile. And, well, this is what Hosea here, this is what God is saying through the prophet Hosea, Hosea, I'm sorry, concerning the nation at this point. And this is the northern kingdom he's dealing with. He says, When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, 
he died. So we see one of the key elements here. He offended through Baal worship. Um, I think there was a note here somewhere. Yeah, um, I can't remember what it was now. I had... Verse 2, now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. And of course, that was just an expression regarding the fact that they were worshiping false idols, false gods, rather than Yahweh. And therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown from off a threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. I mean, how many ways could God say it? That this is how you are going to end up, Ephraim. Like the morning mist, it just rises and it's gone. Like the chaff that the wind blows away. Or like the smoke that just dissipates into the air and it's gone. And you will be no more. You know, you can't really see it go away. You ever go out and sit and try and watch the dew disappear in the morning? <laughs> it, you don't. It just goes. It's gone. And that's exactly what happened to the northern kingdom. When God fully punished them and they were sent off into exile. You remember they were dispersed among the nations. They were, you know, the Assyrians hauled them off, sent them off to all these various countries, and we've never heard from them again. Now, I believe God is going to restore them. That's what he tells us. But the point of the matter is they're gone right now. And we don't know where, that nation is non-existent anymore. And the whole point of it was, was Baal worship. Worshiping the false gods. And so he says in verse 4, Yet I am Yahweh, your God, your Elohim, ever since the land of Egypt. But he says, And you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. And therefore, they forgot me. All the way back, he reminds them, way back there in Egypt, every year, Israel, when you celebrate Passover, it was a reminder to you that I delivered you. I brought you out of Egypt to be my people and for me to be your God. You know, they were so used to being around a multiplicity of gods in Egypt. Egypt had gods for everything you could imagine. The sun, the moon, the stars, the river, whatever. God called them out of that to be their God out into the wilderness. And he says, you forgot me. Or when you had pasture and you got your tummy filled, you forgot all about me. So down in verse 7, he says, So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage. 
and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Now that wild beast was Assyria. And wild, like a wild beast, Assyria did rip the northern kingdom apart. So now in verse 9, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. And there we see that word again. Your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes? And actually, I want to read for you, if I have it, some right here. This is from the ESV. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. I want us to see the connection here in verse 1 between what Yahweh told Ephraim would happen and what the end result was in these verses we just read. Because he tells them here in verse 1, when Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself. But when he offended through Baal worship, what happened? It says he died. In what sense did Ephraim die? When Ephraim was dispersed among the nations and carried off by the Assyrians, they lost everything that Yahweh had given them. Even in the northern kingdom, when the kingdom was split, they still had kings. Now they have nothing. And that's what he's telling them in verse 10. Where now is your king? How is he going to save you? You don't have one. He's gone. I'm your help. And yet, they refused to call on Yahweh. They refused to acknowledge the God that had brought them out of Egypt. And so in the sense that they had lost their regality, they had lost their kingly position as a northern nation, they died. And they were no more. And so we find that constantly, all throughout the Old Testament, passage after passage is consistently speaking of one who comes to the aid of another, who is alongside, and of course that's the picture we get of Yahweh with Israel. He was constantly there at their side. All they had to do was call upon him for help, and he would deliver and yet they refused. Rather than going to him, they went to the gods of the nations around them and they fell into idolatry. And because of their refusal to acknowledge him, off they went into captivity and then dispersion to be no more. And as a, as a northern kingdom, and with Ephraim being, of course, the leader of those ten tribes 
that were, that were in the northern kingdom, they died. They no longer had existence. Now, if you're thinking ahead, let's go back to chapter 2 of Genesis and let's look at this other usage of this word for helper when it's used of Eve. What does it mean? It's fair then we could ask this question. Once we've seen how the word is used, even in, it's in, in so much as it's used in a name, Eliezer, God is my helper. What in the world does it mean here then in respect to Eve? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, and you start with verse 1 all the way to chapter 2 and verse 3, you have the initial creation account. And in this account, it tells us very plainly that God created male and female as co-equals. He says there in verse 25, <clears throat> excuse me, God made the beast of the earth according to his kind, cattle, and uh, according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. There's nothing said there, in other words, about any inequality. They are co-equals, and God blessed them. Now, in verse 31, well, actually, in the verse we just read first, uh, verse 25, you'll notice there at the end of the creation there, before it tells us about God making man, he says, God saw that it was good. Then it tells us that he make, made man in his image. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. When you come down then to, to verse 30, where he says, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. You see that little adjective, that little very good? Prior to God's creation of man and woman, the creation was good. Now that he's made them, it is very good. And not only that, he said, uh, well, before I get ahead of myself, so the point of it all is, is that in God's creation, you know, when he comes to this point, it's like he's stopping and saying, it's not complete. It's not done yet. It's good but there's more to be done. And in creating man and woman, male and female, then he tells us, very good. Then he comes on to say, in chapter 2, 
Um, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord... Now you think... Now this is a recounting here. So watch the order here because there's no Eve at this point. And we'll see that coming up. That when he put man in the garden, he was there all alone. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think what God is trying to tell us here is that when he put man in the garden concerning these trees, that he had everything he needed in, a, in, in that sense to fulfill God's mandate. In other words, in supply, if you think of it as supplying, providing what was in the garden, but then he goes, then verses 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever on down, he talks about the four different rivers and so on. Verse 15, he says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. This is what he made him for. But notice what he says next. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Or the King James says, A help meet for him. And some of your translations say, I will make him a helper comparable to him. I think the word fit more properly gives us the idea of what God was intending to accomplish when he said that it is not good for man to be alone. In other words, to accomplish what I have made him for and to put him in this garden, there's still something lacking. And that's a helper. Now, when you think about that, he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And we think about the meaning of that word. What would this helper be? Well, it would obviously be then a helper that was perfectly compatible and a complement, if you want to say it that way, a complement to enable God's dominion mandate to be completed or fulfilled. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in verse 28 uh, of, ch of chapter 1 and subdue it and so on and have dominion over it and to do all those things he was going to have a helper what kind of helper well before that story ends we find out that man disobeyed God and they partook of that tree that they were told not to but he told them in verse 17 chapter 2 verse 17 we, he's told them there in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die and I want us to think there about the matter of death 
in the same manner in which Ephraim, because of her disobedience to God, would die. Because Ephraim, being one of God's chosen and bearing a regal position as a king and losing her king and being sent into exile and being no more, as we stated earlier, died. God warned Adam, you eat of this tree and you're going to die. And I want to suggest to you that in the same way that Ephraim lost her kingly status, so Adam, along with Eve, lost their regal positions in the garden. And God removed them from that position. And they experienced a death. A death that robbed them, if you will, of their glory and their honor that God had put them in in the Garden of Eden. Now we could easily say, yes, God is busy about the, the, his plan, if you will, of restoration, of restoring man back to this position of regality, of honor, and of glory and putting him in a place where he might once again fulfill the dominion mandate that God gave him it is not possible under the condition that Adam was in. There was no way that he was going to be able to stay in that garden and do what God called him to do. So, in creating this help me, well, look at in chapter 3. We see the verses there. Verses, in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. I see something very similar there to what happened to Ephraim. He was demoted, if you will, to a life of sweat and toil and pulling weeds out of the garden and trimming the bushes around the house, you know, or pruning the blueberry bushes or the apple trees or whatever it is. He was subjugated to a life of toil while God was in the process of bringing about restoration. Now, I say all of that to say then that when God put Eve by Adam's side to be his helper, that it was not as a secondary citizen of this earth to kind of help him out, to serve him while he went about trying to tend the garden or toil his way through life while God was busy about fulfilling his plan of restoration and bringing his son to this earth. 
where he would die at the hands of men, but ultimately be restored, resurrected, and brought to a very high and lofty kingly position on a throne at the right hand of his father. And so when he says that he has put Eve here to be a helper, it is to be a complementarian, if, it, if you will, to the great work that God has given us in seeing his mandate fulfilled. And because of that, because of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, his, I should say really the whole process, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the throne, all of this plays into God's plan of how he wants you and I, whether it's as individuals, but we're talking particularly here as man and wife or husband and wife to fulfill what he's called us to do. And if we go, you know, if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and there's other verses we could go to, quite a few actually. But I want to end with this, well, not exactly this passage, but we'll draw it to a close here. In 1 Peter chapter 3, where he talks about wives, he says, being in submission to your own husbands, and so on, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, and so on, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Rather, he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, that is, with your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And I want us to see there this phrase that you may be heirs together of the grace of life. What was the end goal here that Paul or Peter here is instructing us in regarding husband-wife relationship? Is that in the end you might be here he's, in the New King James it says you might be heirs together. The word is actually joint heirs, that you might be co-inheritors of the grace of life, which I take to be nothing but a euphemism for the glories that are to come. What God wants to honor each of us with in terms of kingliness, 
if you will, to elevate those who have been obedient to him to positions of loyalty. You remember the passage or the verse back in Romans chapter 8 where this same word is used where Paul is just, well, I mean, he is just rolling on here in chapter 8 of Romans. And finally, you know, in his argument, he says in verse 16 concerning us that if we are children of God, then that means we are heirs automatically. We are subject to and due to an inheritance. But then he says, and joint heirs. Now the word joint heirs there is the same word that Peter uses back in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. That husbands and wives would be joint heirs. So he's not only talking about individuals here in Romans chapter 8, he's talking about couples over here in 1 Peter 3. That they would be co-heirs together. And he says in verse 17, concerning that, that we would be joint heirs with Christ, who has already led the way and has secured a place for you and I. And that's what him sitting on his throne means. He is sitting today on his throne of glory. And so when he says that we would be joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. And then, you know, it just stops. There's a period there. But the thought continues on. The idea is, is that we will be glorified together with him. That's why Paul says in the next verse, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with this glory which shall be revealed in us. And so when we talk about, you know, when we talk about woman, Eve, being a helper, an aid, it is the kind of aid in the same manner in which God himself came along the side of Israel to give aid to them in their time of need, in their time of trouble. And, and we are to do that as well. Aid one another. You know, the scriptures throughout the New Testament tell us love one another, pray for one another, help one another. What does this helper do? This helper enables people like me to be able to make it. If I didn't have that helper, I'd be in big trouble. I would. He's telling us there in Genesis that without that help, you ain't going to make it. You can't fulfill that mandate. Be joint heirs. Labor together in order to be joint heirs together and co-inheritors of what God wants to give us.
Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, for all the promises you've given us in your word regarding what you have in store for us, what lies out in the future for this earth, and what you want to do for the people of God who are faithful to you. We think of King David and all the troubles he went through, and yet he called upon you to be a help. And we thank you that we have that freedom today to call upon you for help, even now. But we thank you, Father, for those you've given us along our sides to be our help and our aid as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.